Well, respect and information. Education is what you get from the Progressive Radio Network and Warrior Connection. We've got an incredible guest today, ladies and gentlemen. C.C. Mosby, he's a Korean War vet, combat vet from Korea, veteran of Vietnam War. He was a Vietnam correspondent over there just after the Tet Offensive. He's founder of Veteran of Stars and Stripes for Peace, the Chicago Defender, and the Negro, Negro Press International. This gentleman's a historian, American hero, combat in Korea, covered it all in Vietnam. C.C., welcome to Warrior Connection, sir. It's an honor. Thank you. I hope I can live up to everything you just said. That's a whole lot. Uh, The most important thing that has happened in connection with war is that I learned to hate it in Korea. I uh, was gung-ho, ready to go. Got over there. It was winding down by the time I arrived, so there wasn't that much combat. We did go on patrol. One day, uh, night, we were relieving the first Marines. They started fighting in trenches, so we had no man's land out in front of us. It was back to World War One. And I was in the advance party because I was in the INR platoon, intelligence and recognizance. And so we went up the hill. The Marines coming down said the trench was empty. Well, that wasn't quite true. And as I was going through the trench, it cut a defilade and I smelled the peppers. They eat peppers over there like a did. We eat candy. And the peppers are so strong that when there's a group of them together, or even one person, the odor is there. And I hid. And this Chinese soldier came around, and I cut him with a, a knife. And then because I had killed him, I had to, we were intelligence and reconnaissance, I had to examine him. I took out his wallet. And he had a picture in his wallet, a lady holding a small child and an elderly man and an elderly woman. I had the same picture in my while well, only I wasn't married, but I had the elderly man, the elderly woman, and my brother. And that's when I became anti-war. Because on another occasion, that young man and I may have sat down and showed each other pictures and had a decent conversation. I've been opposed to war events since. After things got out of hand, in Vietnam, after John Fitzgerald Kennedy increased the number of soldiers and Marines there. I think that's something that's not known. John Fitzgerald Kennedy is the one that beefed up Vietnam, correct, sir? That's correct. Johnson inherited it. 
Lyndon Baines Johnson inherited the Vietnam War. So, but my point is that we have a situation where young men are told that they need to go to these countries to protect our country. And that's the total fake news. There is only one country that could give us a fight. That's Russia. And why are we in these other people's country? That's their country. We don't belong there. If they came to our country, we would be fighting like everything, kick them out. But we're back at the 18th, 19th century colonialism where European societies primarily were stealing resources like it was going out of style in colonies all around the country, the world. And they created fake news to convince young men, primarily, that it was the right thing to do to go off to somebody else's country and subdue them so that the great resources of those countries could be commanded by the colonial country. The Hope Diamond is England. Told to be the most beautiful diamond in the world. Who, by what right, does England own that diamond? They don't. I mean, it's just it's the same thing. When we look at everything in American history, you know, with Jefferson and everything, the Louisiana Purchase. That land didn't belong to France, didn't belong to anybody. It was the Native Americans, and all of a sudden the U.S. came in, and they said, well, let's purchase it for France in order to give it some type of a legal justification, even though it's fabricated, in order to gain ownership and take it over. You bring me to a point I always deal with. The Mayflower Compact, sacred document. These invaders... That's who they were. Sat on a lee boat off the place they would name Plymouth Rock and wrote a covenant that would govern their society and divided the land up among themselves and completely ignored the fact that people lived on that land and had been living on that land for several thousands of years, they totally pushed them aside. I don't celebrate Thanksgiving because the people they pushed aside taught them how to survive. And over time, they gave them blankets with smallpox on it 
And the governor of Massachusetts said they didn't own the land because there were no fences. Sherwood Forest has no fences. Everybody knows it belongs to the king. So the duplicity and hypocrisy of those great explorations where they're running around the world bringing civilization to people who are already living with laws and customs and religion. You see the fake news? And then, as a consequence, all of us veterans and all of us that have years for years and years have done it, where we went to Vietnam or Desert Storm or Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom, deep down in our soul, we're realizing, wait a minute, these people are not any different than us. They just want to live society and everything else. They have no capability to overthrow our government or to change our way of life as far as suspending any of our brilliant Bill of Rights things. But day after day, like Memorial Day, was just this week. And all it was over and over again, they died for preserving our freedoms. They died for this. But we're looking, in reality, economic domination, servitude, resource allocation. And hence, all of a sudden, in a sense, it makes sense why PTSD ravages, it's actually a moral injury knowing, hey, this is flat wrong deep down in my heart, but I'm doing it anyhow. When they broke with England, you know why they broke with England? Some of the richest men on the planet lived in the English colonies on in this hemisphere. They had a king who had a mental problem. And under the divine right of kings, everything they had that they had built belonged to the king. And he could take it away from them at any time he wanted it and give it to whoever he wanted to have it and leave them with all their debts. They couldn't pay the debts. They go to Bedlam. Bedlam was a penitentiary. It became a nut house. And if they couldn't pay for the food and comfort that they would like in Bedlam, no money, that was the end of it. Ben Franklin went back and forth to England regularly because he was very wealthy. When the fight erupted, his son was the governor. He eventually went to England, broke with his father, and never talked again. But what I'm saying here is that they broke with England to protect their money. That's exactly why they broke with England, because they were some of the wealthiest men on the planet. And another thing I like to talk about always, Creole means born of an immigrant in the Western Hemisphere. 
So everyone who was born of an immigrant in the Western Hemisphere, white, black, green, gray, purple, are Creoles. George Washington was a Creole. Thomas Jefferson was a Creole. Uh, ben Franklin was a Creole. I would be because my grandparents were born in Norway and Germany. So you're a Creole. You, you see? And, again, what we're talking about is fake education. Uh, we're in the land of Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said that he would not be a slave if it was his choice. That he would not be a slave if it was his choice. And he chose not to be a slave. They talk about Lincoln saying, if I could win the Civil War, uh, without freeing slaves, I would. If it became necessary to free the slaves, he would. And what we deal with in that statement is that the party which became the Republican Party was founded in 1856. And they had as their candidate John C. Fremont who was an engineer and who had mapped free world pathways to California. California, in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, it was not a debate. Lincoln spoke one day, Douglas spoke the next day. They did not confront each other. It was not a face-to-face -face confrontation no. debate. Lincoln spoke one day, Douglas spoke the next day. So why in history are we taught it was if they stood face to face? Well, it's like these fallacies we have on television every four years. They call debates. They're not debates. They're publicity such. And everybody gets a chance to say what he wants to say. Debate. I make my statement. You make your statement. I make my surprise rebuttal. You make your rebuttal. Debates are one-on-one. -on -one. That's the nature of it. That's the way it's established. So those things they call presidential debates are not debates. And I never watched them. They're just public ad campaigns. That's all they are. I, uh, there are so many things that we are dealing with today. One of the things I really wanted to at this point in time. Yes, I was a soldier. I went to war. I'm proud of my service. I did it honestly and honorably. And I killed a man. And I see his face regularly. All the time. It's not something that I can forget. However, I deal with the fact that as God created the world, and I'm a God-fearing man, we need to find a way to stop the slaughter of human beings in the name of God. I forget the exact day, but during World War I, 
before the Americans arrived. On Christmas Day, both sides stopped shooting, and both sides prayed for the same God. See, that's what we don't deal with with World War I. The Germans were praying to God, the Central Powers, and that's uh, Austria-Hungary, Germany, and the Allies were praying to God, the same God. And that's the hypocrisy of war, because how is it possible that both of us are going to be right and God is going to pick one side over the other? It's not. <laughs> I uh, These things run around in my mind, and I, I, I have problems with the fact that today, as I sit here, I am a sixth-generation American. Most, almost all black people who call themselves fourth, fifth, and sixth-generation Americans descend from black captives who arrived in the United States, the future United States, between 1703 and 1790. So when they ratified the Constitution, saying all persons born in the state's possession and territories were citizens at birth, black people were citizens. But there was a problem. They said that representatives to the House of Representatives from each state, the number thereof, would be based on the human population. Well, most of my early ancestors lived in what they call the South Atlantic states, the southern states. There were seven southern states and six northern states, so they outnumbered the so-called free states. But there were no free states say, Pennsylvania, prior to the revolution. Several states ended slavery following the revolution. One of the things that happened was they said involuntary servitude, person in involuntary servitude, were three-fifths of a person, three-fifths of a person. It just happened that most of those persons were slaves in the southern states. So they had to work out a deal because if they allowed them to be whole human beings as they were in colonialism, the southern states would inundate the House of Representatives by calling them three-fifths of a person, 
and putting them in voluntary servitude, they reduced the number. They became property. But they counted the property to determine the number of representatives. They put captives as property on their tax returns, but they counted the property to determine the number of representatives. And up until 1858 or thereabouts, the South dominated the Congress and they counted property. Well, cows were property. Horses were property. Houses were property. And they count, defined these human beings as property, but counted them to determine who would, how many people would come to Congress from each state. How do you like that? Three-fifths of a man. No, three-fifths of a person. Three-fifths of a person. Three-fifths of a person. It's interesting. When, after all your experience and everything, I mean, you went to Korea, had this horrific experience, made your choice of what you wanted to do, and yet you went back to Vietnam as a correspondent. Well, you got I over there right about the time of Tet, right after Tet in 68. What was it like coming back to another war some 15 years after the fact as a correspondent, try to report on a war. How how difficult was that? Well, there was a place called uh, Rain, uh, Rainbow Beach, and uh, they had Phoebe's civilians, as you know, but they are construction workers. And at this place called Rainbow Beach, they had a flare-up between white and black sea bees. And so I went to Vietnam, sponsored by the Veterans for Peace. We had the Veterans for Peace, Stars and Stripes for Peace newspaper. And I went to Vietnam to deal with racial problems. That's why I went, to see how it was going. And when I got to Vietnam, I learned that race was a very strong issue. The stars and bars was on every vehicle, every Marine vehicle, and some Army vehicles prominently displayed. Now, we had the story in Time magazine that uh, this black master sergeant was leading a mixed group of soldiers going on to patrol. But when they came off the battlefield, they separated by race. And they had a, a, a section in South Saigon where all the black servicemen went. I went into a restaurant with a uh, young South Vietnamese gentleman who was interviewing me for his newspaper. 
And he took me to a restaurant. And by the time I sat down, you could hear the pin drop. Because everyone was staring at me. And I thought that was Mississippi. Because they had a decided animus toward black people. I met a, a, a young soldier over there who was on his third tour, and he had married a young Vietnamese woman. They never traveled together. Every time they were seen together, the South Vietnamese police who wore great uniforms would arrest her and show she was a prostitute because she was with the black man. And that sort of thing brings me to uh, Colin Powell. Colin Powell enlisted in the Army, went off to Scandry School, eventually became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That was a magnificent accomplishment. He walked into the Pentagon and everybody slapped him. But if he went into the wrong restaurant in Wake Cross, Georgia, he could get killed. Just that simple. And that's the problem. The problem is that this society was established on a hypocrisy that still governs it today. Barack Obama, the President of the United States, the serving President of the United States, said he was not an American citizen, that he was born in Kenya. He said it for five years, and then he finally admitted when it was necessary that he was an American citizen because his mother was a white lady from Kansas, which made him an American citizen. And the reason Hillary Clinton lost was white racism. Every president of the United States has had to endure white racism. John F. Kennedy won the nomination. And when he was in the Senate, Lyndon Baines Johnson was a majority leader. He had been in the Senate for a few years before Kennedy got there. Kennedy didn't want to have anything to do with him. Al Rayburn, who was the Speaker of the House, explained to Kennedy, if you want to win the election, you have to have a Southern running partner. And the most famous and popular Southern was Lyndon Baines Johnson. Johnson became the Vice President. Kennedy treated him very badly, sent him all around the world to various and sundry places, totally disrespected him, and that's historic. I have to say, 
at this point. Benjamin Johnson was the greatest presidential friend black people ever had. I debunked the so-called friendship of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. He didn't do anything with it. He was in Texas to convince Southern whites that he was not going to surrender to Martin Luther King. That's why he was there. There wasn't a black person in that caravan. There were no blacks, Secret Service men, with him. It was Lily White. That is when he was assassinated in November of 63. I remember that day as if it happened yesterday. I do remember it. And I was sad and sorry that the president got murdered. He was the president. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was his best friend. After the march on Washington, which he opposed, I was there. My wife was there. People walked up Pennsylvania Avenue going toward the uh, Lincoln Memorial. Wall-to-wall people. The streets in Washington are extra wide around the White House, so horses pulling wagons could turn around. So they were wide across the street. Simple practical purpose. And what happened was, Kennedy, I'm told, I was not there, saw all these people, and he wanted to come out and march with him. And they had to explain to him, no, Mr. President, you can't do that. Now, he could have, but he didn't. Martin Luther King wrote subsequently that we had to be very careful with John Kennedy, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, because he was going to do his level best to delay what we are fighting for. He made that statement. But I wanted to talk about some other things. It's nice to talk about that. I uh, started off by Col- uh, Colin Powell. And I always compare Colin Powell to the Vandals. Now, the Vandals were an ethnic group that lived primarily in what became Germany. This was back uh, when Attila was roaming uh, the prairies. And they came to so Rome. So we're talking at the time of Christ or before? This is after Christ. Okay. And they came to Rome. On the way to Rome, they really were disreputable. That's why we get the term vandal, because they tore up everything. And when Attila reached Rome, they settled in Rome. They changed. They became civilized. And when Attila reached Rome, a vandal general was running the Roman legions. He couldn't be a citizen, but he was roaming, running the Roman legions. Like I said, Colin Powell enlisted 
went to Officers Candidate School, became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, going to the, any Washington restaurant, look here, going to the Pentagon, they're going to snap too. Go into a greasy spoon joint and way across Georgia, he might get his head blown off. But he's a general running the army. The first time I had experience with the Southern thing is on an Easter break back probably 1964. And 14 of us loaded up into Chevy Greenbrier van with a trailer, and we were going down to Florida for Easter break. And we pulled into Chattanooga at the base of Lookout, Lookout Mountain to get gas on the way to Florida. I think everybody's done that path, which is now 24 to 75 and on down. And there was a black gentleman in there at that time. This is 1964. He had to be 70-plus years old, so definitely from the end of the last century. And all of a sudden, he's trying to get gas, and we're seeing there and just understanding what's going on. All of a sudden, the Klan showed up, and they didn't want him there at a white gas station pumping gas. It was that simple. And obviously, the 14 of us from up here were all in, you know, barely had our diapers changed. This was flat wrong. And we started to speak up. And the next thing we know, the shotguns are brandished and things are going all the heck in a handbasket. And this fine black gentleman just looked at us and said, my children, move on, move on, move on. We might lose today, but hopefully we'll win in the future. And the horror in the man's face at seeing what happened just over pumping gas and the, the horror of what was transpiring and the horror that could have transpired. This gentleman just put it all to peace and to rest and dismissed us and left himself. Well, that's something that black people have had to do in this country since the inception. We always had to take the low road. It's called skinning and grinning. And we always outnumbered. And that's why we have to skin and grin. The reason black people only roughly fifteen percent of the total population was until the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act. Which was under Lyndon Baines Johnson. Black people from the continent could not migrate to the United States. They would not allow black people to leave those colonial countries. The migrations didn't begin until the countries became nations. They deliberately held down the black population so that it would not reach the proportions it had during colonialism when the black population of South Carolina was greater than the white population. The famed Alex de Coupville, who was early on sociologist, came from France 
to do a tour of the United States. And he wrote that South Carolina was a black man's country because there were so many black people there. Essentially, the South was a black man's country. Black captives outnumbered white people in the South for years. Again, servitude and economic they were, and farming and labor. They labor. were unpaid. Well, I put it this way. From 1619 to 1863, black people were fully employed. You could not find a black person that wasn't working. Most, if not all, were not getting paid, but they were working. Since 1863, black people have led the statistics in unemployment, even up and including the time they were working on growing cotton in the South until mechanization kicked them off plantations. That was a reason that the black population moved north. I read where one gentleman told black people, go up north, get on welfare. We don't need you no more. Because they had cotton picking machines, which were developed in Israel. And before it was Israel. And they pulled the bars out and put the captain on a truck, and that was it. So they didn't need them anymore. Interesting point. Eli Whitney developed the machine again. It was the cotton engine to be used by white men on small farms. South Carolina bought the rights to the machine from Whitney so that any person who wanted to build one could build one. They were still very expensive, so gins became located in strategic areas I understand that cotton gin is basically what separates the cotton out of the husk and removes the seed, correct? That's right. Because otherwise the cotton fibers are all and a they, horrible nightmare. And they tear your hands up. They cut your hands to smithereens. Yeah. So Whitney saw it as a machine to aid what they call small yeoman farmers. This acres were a lot of land in those days. And they built the machines, and they used the black captives to do the cotton. And white males could not get jobs. The White House was built by black slave labor. Andrew 
uh, what's his name, followed Washington, the president followed Washington, John Adams, moved into the White House while black captives were putting up plasterboard in the White House. And up till recently, all of the many servants in the White House were always black. It only changed uh, around the time of uh, Kennedy. Where most well, you of had, I mean, the stories are with the black men, I mean, with Kennedy and everything, especially with Roosevelt, the same butler, the same individual forever and ever and ever. But by the time uh, of Kennedy, that began to change. And that's when they started bringing in these world-class chefs and all that sort of thing. Although I'm told now that the major chef at the White House is a black woman. I just read that somewhere. But what we're dealing with is the fact that Bethune-Cookman College was started by Mary McLeod Bethune as a high school in Florida because there were no black high schools. She started it with seven students. Eventually it became a junior college and then it became a senior college. And to invite the current Secretary of State to speak at Bethune Cookman College. I'm trying to figure out what the people were doing because I know Mayor McLeod Bethune is spinning in her grave because that lady wants to destroy public education. Why? Because it is now fully established that you cannot discriminate against black and other people in public education. But charter schools a whole other thing. And by making charter schools the route for education that will deny people whom she wants not to be educated the opportunity to go to school. In, in 1860, there wasn't one public college in the South. Most of the Southern educated persons went to Europe to get their education. There were a handful of colleges. Public education, as we know it, was started in South Carolina by Smalls, who sold the um, paddleboat out of Charleston Harbor and gave it to the Union Navy. I can't remember the name right now. He fought in the Civil War. He came home. He became uh, a legislator in South Carolina legislation, and they started public education. Before that, there was no public education anywhere in the South. After they discovered the value public education, once Rutherford B. Hayes betrayed 
the black men who voted for him and allowed him to have a contest with Samuel J. Tilden, which ended up in a tie, in order to become president, Hayes made a deal with the South. He appointed a Southerner postmaster general, becoming president. He removed the last two Union troops in Carolina and New Orleans and said that the Southern white man knew better how to deal with the Negro problem. That's the first time we've ever used. And that led to all of the problems the Ku Klux Klan had been captured for a while by Congress, but once Rutherford V. Hayes came in, the Klan ran wild. And the most dangerous thing a man could be, a white man could be, in the South was a Republican. The most dangerous thing a black man could do was try to vote. And Hayes did nothing. And nothing was done under any president. Eleanor Roosevelt was great. FDR played a Southern strategy to a hilt. Nothing was done until Lyndon Baines Johnson. The first Civil Rights Act was passed when Johnson was a Senate Majority Leader in 1957. He laughed and said, it didn't have much teeth, but we got it through. Then he became president, 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voters Rights Act. Now the Republicans have diluted both acts, and they both virtually have no teeth. And despite the fact that various federal court, appeal courts, have thrown out various voting rights identifications, they're still trying to get them through. And everyone knows they're designed to destroy the black vote. Black people voted 99% for Obama. Did. My problem is that we had all these pictures of all these women around the world, mostly white, upset with the president. They brought it on themselves. If all those women had voted for Hillary Clinton, she'd be president. The numbers are there. They didn't vote for her, so they got what they asked for. I uh, sometimes start running up. I don't know when to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us do that. Well, I got a question. There's no doubt as a teacher, both at the elementary and high school, and then as a professor, 
that all individuals, black, white, orange, pink, purple, have incredible capabilities to learn and to achieve greatness. What we see today in a proportion of the cultural population, especially among the blacks and the Hispanics and no matter where it is, a overall failure in education or a failure to thrive in education. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, there's no doubt physiologically, psychologically, the capabilities and everything is the same and it doesn't matter. But why do we see such a social and cultural problem where there shouldn't be one? Well, I understand that you have several cultures in this country. You have the dominant white culture. You have the minority, although they're not so much minority anymore, Asian culture. You have the minority black culture. And I'm told that... uh, the numbers among Asians are rising rapidly, and the numbers among Hispanics are rising rapidly, so that we have reached the point where white people, for the first time in the history of the country, have become a minority population. And education in this country is based on white culture. So black children are not taught white culture. And as a result, they can't succeed in a system which is based on white culture. I grew up in an all-black world And I have to honestly say, I know very little of anything about white people and their culture and their desires and ambitions and whatnot. I don't. All I know is what I read in the newspaper and magazine. And neither are an expression of culture. We have a situation where The average white child is taught from day one in the United States, he's the king and queen of the world. And at the same time, tragically, they are taught that other ethnic groups in this country, primarily black people and the Arapaho and the Cheyenne and the Sioux, and uh, Apache and the Sac and Fox, I don't use Native American because that means that they had something to do with America. They are not Native Americans. They are people who were here before the white invasions. And that's what I'm talking about when we have clash of culture and history. We are taught that all of the history of all of the non-white people is inferior history. That's what is taught in the public school, in the colleges and universities. None of what I'm talking about right now was ever talked about in the history department 
University of Illinois, Chicago. I took a course where they dealt with the great inventions of the 19th and 20th century. Okay. The telephone was not mentioned. The telephone was invented by a black man. The gas mask was not mentioned. The gas mask was invented by a black man. Blood plasma was mentioned. They couldn't get around it because when Roosevelt signed Lend-Lease, England said, send the man who dealt with the blood, the black man. Remember what's his name? The blood man from Howard University. Blood plasma was born at Howard University. The first blood bank as such was set up in England by the inventor of uh, blood plasma. And it was developed at Howard University. Interesting note, General Howard, that's why it's called Howard, founded Howard University for Arapahoes, Cheyennes, and those people. It was to be a school to educate them. They refused to come. So it became a black school. And they never talk about that in the histories that I have read. We have to deal with the fact that this country was founded by a bunch of men who wanted to protect their money. And that's what it's been about, protecting their money. Now, I don't have a problem with money, but I have a problem with the fact that when Cecil Rose was dealing, digging the diamonds, black men were lucky to earn the equivalent of a dollar a year. And he encouraged homosexuality because once they have engaged in homosexuality, they cannot go back to their families. And that was going on in South Africa in the last century. And again, I'm rambling. And we only got a few minutes left here. I mean, it's been astonishing. Our conversations over the years and times are just, every day, mind-boggling. Where does a veteran stand in all this? I mean, the veteran's gone to war. He's had all these beliefs that he's put in there. He goes to war, and whether it's consciously or subconsciously, primarily subconsciously, he realizes that it's a sham. Well, and I then don't... he has to deal with the aftermath of, of that. Well, I don't think that most veterans look upon it as a sham. They served honorably, and they came home, and they believed that they did the right thing, and I'm not going to attack their beliefs. What I'm concerned about is the fact that there's a move to destroy the veterans' hospitals because... The money people want the money that the hospital represents. The veterans' hospitals are the most successful public hospital 
system in the world. It's an example of what can be done. And I recently saw over there in Danville where we go, where they now have little tables for the small children because of the mothers that are now involved in coming to the Veterans Hospital. I'm scared that they will destroy the VA because they, 1% of the top want the money. They want the money that is spent by the Veterans Administration. I don't know what happened in Arizona. I wasn't there. But I have never had a problem getting served in any hospital I went to. Not a problem. And I'm sorry that I learned that a veteran sat and died waiting for an appointment. You don't need an appointment. You go to the old emergency room, they've got to serve you. If they can't find a bed there, they'll find a bed in private hospitals. I think the problem we run into, when a standard combat injury or wound shot up by the enemy, the care is rapid and fast and always has been. But today we're looking at the majority of disease and non-battle injury and as toxic exposures caused by ourselves. And the care becomes shoddy, where I know even though I'm not speaking, uh, my own members or my team can't get care. We can't get care. The doctors order the directives, and the care isn't done. Well, I, I think that it's time for the Veterans for Peace to start again fighting uh, this battle. I, I think it's time that we begin to fight to assure that those young men who fought in those wars get the care that they need. I'm opposed to war, but I will fight hard and long to help them. They fought. They believe what they believe, put it on the line, and they deserve the protection and care, the best protection and care possible. Sir, this has been an incredible conversation. C.C. Mosby, you're 87 years old, sir? Well, I will be. <laughs> God Almighty. Thank you, sir. God bless you, and have a good day, sir. Thank you very much. It was delightful. I rambled. I hope I didn't do too much. Thank you. God bless America, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good evening. <laughs> <laughs>